best moat you can have is a balance sheet that's just stellar. The way people are talking is that, you know, we're never coming back to the office place. Healthy environments, sustainable environments, the office, we'll see some changes. Hi, this is Andrew Parsons, CEO of Resolution Capital, and thanks for joining us for our latest installment of At Home with REITs. Today, I'm talking with John Kilroy, a doyen of the US West Coast office market and CEO of Kilroy Realty Corp. The discussion is particularly timely as Kilroy finds itself navigating what sailors might call an opposing wind. The pandemic-induced work-from-home dynamic challenging the role of the office place against the strong growth of Kilroy's tech and life science orientated tenant base. John, I, honestly, I appreciate your time. Just to, by way of background, um, Resolution Capital, the team's been in place for 25 years. And as part of that, we're just doing some interviews with some of the um, you know, outstanding people in REITs and real estate that we've met over the years. And so we're, we're really grateful that you've agreed to be part of um, that uh, idea. I think you know people hear me rabbiting on about REITs and, and leaders in real estate, but nothing beats actually hearing, dare I say it, from the from the, the purse, the horse's mouth, so to speak. So, um, what, what I wouldn't mind doing is just maybe get you to, for, for the benefit of, of people who aren't so familiar, if you could just describe Kilroy um, at the start, and then we'll, we'll we'll talk about something around you and 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 the current operations, etc. So, as I say, just by way of introduction, might might be best if you describe what Kilroy um, is. Okay, well, Kilroy Realty Corporation, New York Stock Exchange listed uh, public company. Uh, we are a, approximately $11 billion uh, REIT with our focus primarily on uh, office to technology and entertainment companies, as well as life science uh, activities here on the West Coast. We're in San Diego, LA, the Bay Area, meaning San Francisco Bay Area. And Seattle and 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 regions uh, in the in the Northwest. Uh, so that's our focus. That's our scope. Uh, we've been around for a long time as a public company. We went public in early '97, as uh, its predecessor company, Kilroy uh, Industries and related companies, goes back to the late '50s, uh, which my dad created following World War II. Terrific and. Um... I think the uh, yeah, it's interesting that you go back to the fifties and 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 the, the heritage of the business. I think it started out um, uh, around airports and 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 uh, real estate around airports. What was the sort of logic behind that, and what what's the what was the sort of less key lessons from those early days? Yeah, well, before airports, uh, my 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 father was an inspector at Douglas Aircraft, and he wrote a paper on the correlation between the rate of rejection and the workplace environment. And that inspired him to get into real estate following World War II. And so he was really an industrial, but industrial in those days was what we call R&D today. And so he was dealing with uh, the leading companies in the world, in, uh, which evolved from military technology into uh, autonetics and the space and all the aerospace companies and so forth. And then, of course, all the chips and, and processors that flowed from that. So his early days were innovation. And then his, his involvement and uh, in, in the thinking about airports is that if you look historically, great cities have always been generally found at the crossroads, you know, a river and a road, two roads intersecting. And so it made a lot of sense to be where people 
uh, could uh, intersect with other communities and whatnot. And of course, we've taken that to a whole different level as as the companies evolve. But that's kind of the early heritage, and frankly, how we got into t- being a a, uh, a company that really was working with technology companies way back when, long before anybody else. Okay. And we'll, we'll return to the company and real estate shortly, but I'm just curious, uh, in your sort of outside of work, I know you're, you're a pretty enthusiastic sailor, and yeah. um, I, I believe you, you've actually done the Sydney to Hobart, and uh, so, so just take us through what, what sailing gives you, and is it a, an escape, or is it, is, is it learning about tactical issues that you can apply to real estate? Well, you know, it's really a lot of both, and you're right. I did a, a Sydney Hobart race in 71, won it in 70, set the record in 75, won it in 77. Haven't done it since, but love to. Uh, uh, just thinking, hearing you, uh, Andrew, and when we when we meet at various street meetings and so forth, I know we always talk a little bit about sailing because it's such a part of the Australian heritage. Sailing gives you, and I've been fortunate enough, we set a lot of records around the world, won a lot of world championships. And the thing, when it's really not I, it's a team. Sailing, unless you're sailing in a dinghy by yourself, it really is the ultimate team sport. And when you're offshore, you're sailing with such, um, you need to be able to deal with unpredictability. You need to be nimble. You need to be able to know when it's time to be safe and trim sail. You need to know when to go flat out. It teaches you a lot about teamwork, a lot about folks that may look and and walk like they've got the the full nine yards. But when you put them offshore in a tough situation, yeah. you really find out who who's got a, a level mind and and uh, and can get things done in complicated situations. So it's one of the greatest learning curves, and it's it really has inspired me in my business career and my family and 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 everything that I've done. Uh, it's all about teamwork. And it's about a constant self-reflection and review. You can always get better. If you're not, your, your competition is. And therefore, you've got to think about, uh, you know, how you do things better. And that's, I love that component about it. And, uh, of course, now my young son, who's 16, was number one in the world in the toughest class with adults yeah. when he was 14. Uh, so, you know, sailing, it's just a wonderful sport. So on that, and you mentioned sort of the, the different conditions and, and, and again, coming back to real estate and through your career in terms of the different conditions in, in, in real estate markets and changes of direction, wind direction, obviously, et cetera. But, you know, when you think back in your career, you've seen, you know, um, uh, the f- a couple of financial crises, really, including the savings and loan crisis and as well as the more recent GFC, you've seen, you know, the dot-com booms and busts and, 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 uh, terrorism events and earthquakes and, and fires, et cetera. So how, how do you, what's the takeout from those experiences and, and, and your current sort of perception around the, the pandemic? Well, let's just start with a big issue there. There's no, uh, there's no moat that's big enough or deep enough if everything goes bad. But the best moat you can have, the best protection you can have, uh, is a balance sheet that's just stellar. And I often say, and you've probably heard me say, uh, that uh, debt are the rocks upon which all ships, you know, uh, metaphorically, real estate companies and others, ultimately go aground. Uh, and you just can't be in a situation where your balance sheet is at risk. And that allows you to be offensive in a market like in 2010 when we moved in and took San Francisco by surprise and portions of Seattle, 
It allows us to do all the great development that we've done so successfully. So that's the offensive side. On the defensive side, bad things can happen to good people. Bad things can happen to good companies. Um, we have seen all kinds of financial crises in the course of, uh, of uh, the last 20, 30 years. We'll probably see more. And of course, now we have the pandemic. And if you think about the pandemic and you put it in the context of Kilroy, so uh, what I didn't mention when I described the company is we also have some residential, a couple, uh, uh, you know, maybe a thousand units or so. Uh, and uh, and then we have uh, some retail that's related to principally embedded into our office communities, mostly restaurants and things like that. And of course, all the retail, the restaurants have been crushed. So that's as we reported on our uh, recent uh, quarterly call. Uh, you know, that's about a million and a half dollars a quarter of lost income from retail. Uh, it's uh, it's about uh, uh, a, a million plus a month of lost transient parking. If you were a, a private company and you were levered up and uh, you had to make those mortgage payments, but you didn't have the income from your tenants, you're going to be in serious hot water. Uh, fortunately for Kilroy, that's a very modest amount of our overall uh, revenue, and so we're able to sustain it very easily. But uh, in this pandemic, you have to make sure that you have the balance sheet. Unfortunately, we've had the financial markets uh, at our back, at least the debt markets are back, meaning real estate. And then you have to have, uh, from a standpoint of product type, if we think about this pandemic, what is it that tenants are going to want? And I don't know whether you have a question. I should wait for that or whether you want me just to just keep going. Go. Three wheels. Fine OK. OK, great. Well, a couple of things that we really we've been the leaders in innovation as a real estate company in this country. We've been we recognize sustainability before anybody else. We've been the leader in North America eight years running. We've won every award. We're number one in, in all that stuff. Uh, we're number one in just about every category of ESG, including Fitwell, the only entity that has more Fitwell buildings than Kilroy is the United States government, and that's worldwide. So our commitment to these things is not just a fad, it's because it's where companies want to go, healthy environments, sustainable environments that attract and retain the best people. So now if we look at COVID, COVID has accelerated the obsolescence of much of the office stock and many other products uh, around the world and certainly in this country and in our markets. So those buildings that were smaller floor plates, had poor ventilation systems, uh, less uh, vertical transportation capability uh, and, and so forth are just not positioned for the modern company. They weren't positioned well for the modern company pre-COVID. And what COVID has done now is accelerated that transformation. So when companies come back, they're going to come back to the office. They'll have other strategies. Work at home will be part of it. But when they come back, the office will be centered to their, uh, to their workforces. And they're going to want to have those things that they can control, where they have the protocols uh, that they feel are essential for good health and the kind of buildings uh, that accommodate that. The average age of Kilroy's portfolio is 10 years. There's not another company of size, I think, in the world, probably, with the possible exception of some of the Chinese companies, because everything's new there, uh, that has as young a portfolio. So we think we're very positioned 
for a COVID light, which I don't mean to make fun of COVID, or a post-COVID environment. Office right now, everybody has the question, what's work from home going to do? What's the economy going to do? And office has not been doing as well as some of the COVID uh, uh, stars are, like uh, industrial and like digital yeah. and like life yeah. science and so forth. But I think we're very positioned uh, very well positioned for when we come out of this, and we certainly will. Come I mean, out that, of it. that that's well, there's a whole lot of issues we've got to discuss, but that that's an interesting issue. That it is curious that your your um, tenant base is uh, weighted towards the digital world, technology, uh, life science, etc. Um, but it seems as though people are so concerned about. The, the, the workspace environment, that, that those tenants' whole focus is, is about, as you say, the likes of work from home and changing work environments. I, I know it's difficult, and I, I know that you, you know, you've obviously got a vested interest, so let's be, let's be clear, but these sort of you know, discussions, how, you know, again, you've seen, where are we in the, in the workplace um, uh, environment, if you look back again with the benefit of, of hindsight, and the, you know, I can think when I started out, uh, you know, we had typing pools, and uh, uh, believe it or not, yeah. I'm that old. Uh, so, uh, you know, off, the use of offices has consistently changed, and all the time it's about miniaturization and computers and technology and less need for workers in the in the workplace, and yet there does seem to be new ways of finding to use office space. Do, do you get the sense that? That, that is, this is just a continuation uh, and that the changes are more subtle because the way people are talking is that, you know, we're never coming back to the office place. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you go back and you look at the uh, big financial crisis of 10 years ago and you look where office was, it was it was hit just about as hard uh, and it came roaring back and it's very much employment based. Right now, we're not seeing the nearly the reduction in the use of office space in the sense of people wanting to give it up, we're seeing the reduction in the use of office space uh, because people are, are afraid to be together, whether they're, they're in the office or the shopping mall or the restaurant or whatever, for obvious reasons. Uh, and the thing that we do a lot is, you know, we work with all the major uh, 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 Silicon Valley and, and Seattle-based and LA-based, all the entertainment companies, all uh, just about all, and all of the major tech companies. And we get in their heads, they get into ours with regard to where they're going. And let me just uh, mention, you saw last week that uh, I think it was Facebook leased 730,000 feet uh, from Bernardo in New York. Uh, Amazon recently announced they leased another 2 million square feet in Bellevue, Washington. I can tell you that we have uh, innumerable conversations going on for major expansions by many of the big tech companies. They're a couple of years out. Uh, they were a couple of years out pre-COVID. And right now with COVID, it's, it's, it's caused everybody to think about, okay, how do we reintroduce the worker subject to the various ordinances and, and edicts that come out of the various uh, agencies and government. Uh, but I can tell you that the, uh, the, the office will, will see some changes. And they're particularly important. This is where you want to have big floor plates, high ceiling heights, and all the rest. There's going to be a massive emphasis on uh, high ceiling height, bigger floor plates, more, uh, more square footage per person, uh, more common areas with less density, 
Um, and, uh, and that's going to be paramount to uh, the health of these folks. I think you'll also see a, an increased emphasis on, at least in big tech, in wanting to control more of the workplace environment. So I'm not a, I, I think we're, we're offices particularly at risk are small multi-tenant uh, uh, type uh, tenancies because those people can go anywhere. They're working from home right now. Uh, they're probably thinking, gee, I don't have to pay my rent. I'll pay my rent when I go back to the office. Whereas big tech, nobody's not paying the rent. What they're thinking about is how to revise their workplace environment. and. Uh, the protocols that they have as a company, if you as a landlord, let's say you're in a multi-tenant building, if you as a landlord, this is made abundantly clear by our clientele, if you as a landlord are not going to comply with and embrace the protocols that we as a company have, you're not going to be our landlord for very long. And we work so much with these folks that we already have such a uh, you know, a reputation with them for being their partner. We And by the way, it's interesting, Andrew, in calls like this, we talk about tenants. I never talk about tenants. I talk about partners. There are, that we, we view that we have a partnership with them. So there, there will be many ways that the office space will change and there'll be experimentation. Uh, and, it, you know, there will be a post-COVID order, but I think it will resemble more about health and wellness for people, which will include outside. And that's another thing that as a company we're very prideful of. I think we own more rooftop terraces and more uh, mid-rise terraces within buildings and more controlled public spaces within our buildings, outside of the buildings rather, uh, than probably other any other landlord in the country. And that's the other thing we're hearing about is again, that wellness. We need outside areas that we can control that are ours. Mm. So, John. So this is an evolution. Sorry, an evolution, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, on on that, um, when we look at the performance of East Coast versus West Coast, it's been extraordinary. New York office market has languished now for, you know, really it hasn't recovered strongly since the the GFC. And uh, curious, what you see is the the fundamental differences between East Coast West Coast. Is it as simple as just the West Coast is the technology? Um, uh, benefiting from technology demand, or is the East Coast, you know, also suffering from, as you said earlier, way too much obsolete uh, stock, uh, high taxes? Um, what, what, what do you attribute it to? It is as simply as simple as, as I say, West Coast as being the technology entertainment hub um, of, of of really North America and and the world in some respects. Yeah, well, I think you start with that, Andrew, the, uh, the university systems, the ecosystem. You cannot ignore how powerful the ecosystem is in uh, technology. And if you look at so many of these big companies, they're now spawning through technology, through VC investments, either with the VCs or, or having their own VC operations. That's very much a, an ecosystem that you want to be part of. So you start with that. The other thing, and I don't want to pick on New York, but uh, because it can happen in many cities, is that if you have a smaller floor plate building geared towards uh, uh, fire category tenants built in the 60s or 70s with lower ceiling heights, smaller floor plates, you don't have the elevator capacity, you don't have the restroom capacity, you don't have the ventilation capacity, 
then think about it. You, you've got something that fewer and fewer people want, and your pricing power, therefore, is marginalized. And your CapEx associated with those buildings is monstrous. And, and when you look at physicality, many of them can't get up to speed. They just physically don't lend themselves to the modern user. So we have, uh, as you know, uh, sold off periodically and generally annually various assets that we consider to be non-strategic, either because of geography or because of physicality. And I think like anything else, uh, just as investors do, you know, you can say, well, this stock I know is going to come back, so I'm just going to be patient. You can also say this stock is in an industry that's a declining industry uh, and it continue to hold it is there's the, 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 the downside far overweighs the upside. Mm -hmm. We have to think about buildings the same way. It's not as easy to press the button and sell them. But if you're not actively managing your portfolio and making the right asset uh, allocations, uh, I think you could become a dinosaur. And that's what's happening with a lot of the stock in the country. So again, a number of issues there that, that worth talking about, including recycling capital, which maybe we'll come back to, and the impact, short-term impact on earnings, and therefore what the ambition of the company is. Are you, you know, trying to grow earnings quarter to quarter, year to year? I know the company has taken resets, but the other thing that that just coming back is the workplace, and and do you think that you know we work. Um, uh, was obviously the you know a, a bit of a uh, uh, shining star there for a while that, that that seemed to be burning out. Do you think that COVID and and the need for flexibility is playing back into the hands of the the, the co-working we work style model? Or to your point earlier, is it still in fact a, a challenged um, uh, platform given uh, the long term lease commitments and short term cash flows? and the need to control your workplace environment in this um, COVID environment? Well, a couple thoughts. Uh, one is, you know, uh, at Kilroy, uh, we had less than one, one and a half percent exposure to co-working. Mm. WeWork was not a, a tenant of uh, ours, nor are they a tenant of ours. Um, they're, they're, they have a fine idea, and I think on the enterprise side, it's particularly interesting. But you think about it. If all of a sudden companies... Uh, want flexibility in their lease terms, much more like some of the Asian companies uh, that want three years, yes. four years, five mm. years. Who better than well-capitalized landlords to provide that? Mm. Why, why, why lease long-term at a favorable rate to a co-working entity and then let them own that uh, operation? I never quite understood companies doing that. Um, but I, I think there's a place for WeWork for sure. And they've got some fine spaces that they have that are very modern. And so that's good. In terms of the enterprise itself, we voted with not doing deals. And they obviously wanted to do many with us. Um, I think when you look at uh, a technology and you look at some of these things that I've mentioned on health and whatnot uh, that are fitting into uh, people's thinking, um, when you have a co-working environment, you do not have the controls that you have you, when you control your own space. So some people are going to make that decision and say, I want to control my own space, have my own protocols. There's nothing more uh, important for me than my employee's health. And I need as a company to embrace that, demonstrate that day in and day out. As soon as you go into a multi-tenant building, you have 
a question of whether how much control do you have. So you have to have a landlord in a physical building that allows that. Once you go into a co-working space, you know, it's it's a little bit like going into a movie theater. Uh, who's next to you? So they've got to work that out. And I think that uh, the co-working environment, as we've said before, has been a wonderful way for companies to relieve pressure when they need, you know, interim space or whatever. How that's going to be uh, viewed in this COVID and what will ultimately become a post-COVID, but nevertheless, very focused, health-conscious world, uh, I, I can't tell yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, let's then talk, I mean, briefly about sustainability. But, I mean, you've already mentioned it, I know. And, and one of the really pleasing things we've found with Kilroy is that you guys have been very much a leader, particularly in North America, in relation to sust sustainability. And, in fact, um, you know, here in Australia, we've hosted um, one of your people, Sarah uh, Neff, who's uh, come down and, and, and spent time with us and, and seen some Australian companies. So what, what, what was it that led to your passion for sustainability? Was it just a, a business commercial common sense or was it your time in sailing in the environment? I'm just curious because, you, you, as I say, you really were a bit of... Uh, very much a leader in, in North America. So what was the reason for it, as I say, coming down to um, uh, yeah. you know, commercial common sense or, or um, some altruistic uh, notion? Well, first, let me give you a shout out because I asked Sarah, who's a leader in the world, and many of the top tech companies reach out to mm. her. She's our senior president of sustainability for her ideas and thinking. Uh, but I asked her, I said, okay, we're number four in the world. Who are the other three companies? <laughs> They're all Australian. They're all Australian. I said, Australian? It's not that big of a country. She says, yeah, they have a very harsh environment and they've had to deal with it. And so that made sense to me. To your question, um, I, it, the commercial side of it absolutely makes sense and we can demonstrate that. But it didn't start with that. And we started with the fact that, and, and you're right about sailing. We, I've, I've sailed since I was a kid. So, you know, that's a lot of years, a lot of decades. And I've seen the ocean get increasingly uh, filthy, not just uh, containers, but trash and, and debris and microfibers and all the rest. We see it in our ports. We see it in our harbors. You know, you go to the beach, you see trash all over. It's not, you know, there's not enough trash cans or people don't put it in. You see it in parks. You see it all around the world. We, you know, we've seen the, the, the rainforest get diminished and diminished. And, you know, I, it's, I'm kind of an unusual person. I'm a developer, so therefore inherently evil <laughs> to, to, to uh, uh, sustainability people. And yet we're the number one sustainability company in North America and the first one to a real estate company to be carbon neutral by the end of 2020 in the world. So what is it? And my, my, my attitude is this. We can't get this wrong. We got one Earth. We got one. I don't have a spaceship company. I can't sell you trips tomorrow. I can't, I can't tell you this. If we get this wrong, then, then everything else that we think about in our daily lives doesn't mean anything. And we have a responsibility. And I think what I've enjoyed is the fact, and it really started with Europe, perhaps in your country as well, but I really saw with the Europeans embrace sustainability and value it and ask more and more questions. And I think they embarrassed and, and pushed America to become far more cognizant of it. And we're proud to do our uh, point in it. I lecture at this stuff you know, regularly uh, and I got to tell you, if I can't get if I can't pull them along, I'll push them along. If I have to kick them in the you know what, 
in the rear to, to move them along. Uh, I'm just focused. And with regard to the uh, big tech companies, they are, think about it, they're largely millennials. Mm -hmm. The most sustainable conscious generation in the world only to be followed by other generations that are even going to be more so. So it's part of their culture. It's part of the way they think. And, and when they look at a Kilroy, they think, hey, these people are our partners. They understand. They're, they're embracing our culture. So it is very good from a business standpoint. Well, on that, it's curious because, uh, you know, a leading public re research organization who would know came out and said that they didn't find any particular short-term benefit of sustainability in leasing, but, but certainly longer term on, on, on uh, releasing, et cetera, yes. Did, did, did you'd probably be familiar with the study I'm talking about. Did, did you agree with that, those findings? Well, I, I, I don't have to, to memory the entirety mm. of the study, but I'll say this. It's hard to quantify it in terms of nickels, dimes, or quarters per month mm. per square foot. That is hard. But I can tell you, it can be very binary where people have said, I've had major, you know, senior executives of major tech companies go, we want to be in this building. It happened to be ours because it was well-located, embraced the things, and they love the sustainability. And we don't want to be in this other building because they don't embrace those things. So I can tell you from a decision standpoint, Andrew, it's, it's very apparent in terms of... Uh, uh, you know, I, I was with the CEO of one of the biggest uh, tech companies in the world. It happens to be headquartered in a building of ours uh, here in the Bay Area. And he was having a big conference that was dealing with sustainability. Uh, and his, he mentioned, he said, you know, we have an edict in our company that we're not going into any building unless there is absolutely no alternative that isn't a minimum lead gold and preferably lead platinum. It's part of the culture of that company and that's what you see all the time so i think that you also think about organizations that are made up of many different companies some of which embrace and have and some of which haven't embraced and don't have it's not surprising and i'm not saying this is the case that these studies get a little bit mixed you know they get a little bit homogenized perhaps i'm not saying that's the case but no it, no it happens no, absolutely look uh, and again you mentioned earlier that you know, you're the, the, the devil developer in some respects. Just take us through, you know, the, the, when we talk about REITs, people are concerned about development and, and risk, etc. So, and, and the other thing you mentioned was, was capital recycling and selling off parts of the property. And, and so just help us understand when, you know, we're out, um, dare I say, promoting uh, REITs, the concern that people have is that, you know, they just want to go and invest in an unlisted vehicle, which is relatively stable and predictable and and then we talk about the benefits of of a Kilroy which will periodically sell swathes of property which can be short term short term uh, I stress earnings delusionary etc and you also do development which people again equate to volatility and risk uh, help us understand or, or people understand why you think it's important to to do those and why they shouldn't or should consider that strategy as opposed to, as I say, a passive, uh, unlisted yeah. strategy? Well, what, I've, what I embrace, and we've embraced at Kilroy, is the notion that there are different points in the cycle when you want to have, uh, if you have the capabilities, you can play it differently. There's times to do nothing. 
In other words, just manage your portfolio. Don't buy anything. Don't develop anything. Don't sell anything. That's the best strategy for that particular point. If you look at early in the recovery, uh, you want to buy at attractive prices, excellent properties in excellent locations. You may have to fit them up a little differently, uh, but that's a very can be very robust to the value creation uh, cycle. And then as the recovery goes further and it becomes more stabilized, people need to expand a new product. And that's been that's accelerated with regard to the phenomenon we've talked about with regard to this transformation of the type of space that people want. And that's true in life science. That's true in office. That's true in a variety of different things. And so if you have the capabilities to develop, if you take a look at Kilroy since 2012, 2010, we became big buyers. Mm. Uh, we moved into San Francisco, as you know, and bought, uh, you know, two and a half, three and a half million square feet at very favorable prices, you know, way less than half of, of uh, what they're valued today. And if you look at from a development standpoint, back in 12, we started really 11 and 12, started positioning ourselves and we've developed and delivered several billion dollars worth of brand new state of the art product, which is the best product for the long term at going in yields of roughly 8% in markets that are trading, you know, plus or minus four, four and a half percent. So you're basically creating double value and you're getting a portfolio. That's what's driven the age of our portfolio down to an average of 10 years. Uh, and so, I, it, but there's a time when development doesn't make sense. If there's, if the risk is such or the demand is such uh, or the macro environment is such that it just feels too risky, then why do it? Because you're going to, that's, that's that's not going to reflect but, but, uh, well. How do you mitigate the risk of getting the timing wrong, John? I mean, yeah. Well, I think pre-leasing. You've heard me speak about this so much. Yeah. Is that pre-leasing or early leasing? So if you look at, we have roughly two billion dollars underway right now. The office uh, life sciences is ninety percent leased to terrific companies on long-term leases at fabulous going in yields. And the other 10% is something that we just started a year ago. One of them be operational for a year and a half that's in a great market. So we're not starting anything else right now. We might consider starting. our. The only consideration we have for a start next year would be the second phase of uh, our uh, Kilroy Oyster Point life science development in the city of South San Francisco. We started phase one spec. That was roughly approximately 700,000 feet, leased it all within six months of starting construction. Very strong demand there. So my view is what is you want to make see the the common theme is terrific demand from a diversity of tenants, not just one tenant. You want to see um, the uh, the rentals increasing. You want to you want to know that your uh, your expirations in your own portfolio are not going to negative Im, Im, be impacted or vice versa, that the coming on stream of the building, if it doesn't lease right away, doesn't contribute to just increased uh, vacancy. And you want to make sure that you are building in bite-sized bits and, and pre-leasing. And that's what we've done very successfully over time. And we'll continue to do that uh, as is appropriate. But again, I want to say, We've sold when it made sense. We've bought when it made sense. We've redeveloped when it made sense. We've developed when it made sense. And we've done nothing but just manage our portfolio when it makes sense. And you have to have the balance sheet that allows you to play as well as the management team and capabilities to play those aspects of a cycle. And I think we've done that uh, very 
uh, you know, appropriately over the last many years. So how do you then view, as I say, you know, again, if I've got a private investment, the, the promise is this stability and consistency and just, you know, edging higher. And what you're talking about does come with some transitional volatility, for want of a better term. Do you think that that's a small price to pay or do you accept that this volatility is going to be somewhat hard for people to understand or do you think that uh, clearly you think the price is worth paying in terms of that short-term you know, dilution as you transition from you know, development to trade, selling, et cetera, et cetera? Well, let me, let me look, just kind of paint a picture to help uh, answer that, Andrew. Okay, so we have roughly uh, on our $2 billion development program, we have roughly $600 million, $500 million, whatever it is, of, uh, of spend uh, remaining spend, and we have roughly two billion dollars of liquidity. As you know, we just did a, 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 a big bond deal and so forth. So my attitude is: it's pre-leased, it's best-in-class assets, leased the best-in-class tenants in best-in-class markets. It's pre-funded, uh, and I like that. And yes, there is some. Um, uh, it takes a while for the EBITDA or the income to come on stream, but it's predictable. You know that it's there because it's pre-leased. Uh, if you simply are a, a, a buyer of assets, you, let's think about this. Yes, you have the 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 whatever the income is that you uh, are buying from day one, but you also have the risk that ultimately that rolls out as well. And so um, there are different kinds of investments for different people. But I think it's a mislead. It's misleading to think that by just investing in a private company where you don't have a daily mark to market, that might make people feel better. But I, one thing I've learned about being a public company, I know Brace is a CEO 23 or four years ago when we went public, is that now everything is transparent. Mm. Every mm. single thing you do, warts and all, is totally transparent. Mm. And frankly, I think that's what investors should look for in volatile markets is how transparent good companies but how transparent is it because if it isn't transparent you don't know what's lying under the surface i like clear water <laughs> again great point about uh, transparency and john one of the things we've appreciated this is before we were an investor in kilroy when we would go and um and speak with you was that you were very um open and clear about what the strategy was and that you made clear was that you know you wanted to get into San Francisco. This was in in, in the early two thousand mid two thousands after the dot com crash. You said I've just got to wait. I've just got to wait. And then you know obviously the financial crisis happened, and you did get the opportunity. And as you've already referred to, you the timing was extraordinary. I mean uh, you know it really did set up Kilroy for the for the next decade. Um, so what I, I then want to understand then is. Your timing into the into San Francisco was extraordinary. What's the sort of next ten years look like? And and maybe if we could just talk about one of the concerns, of course, that people will talk have talked about is the dot com um, bubble and bust of the late nineties, early two thousands. Is the technology story that different today, or is it still going to be a volatile area? But perhaps the amplitude maybe not be as bad, or or, or in fact, it's it's just a completely different dynamic now. 
Well, let, let's. There's two parts to that question: where we're going and, and the tech. Let me deal with the tech versus the the, the dot com. In dot com, you had massive amounts of companies that had no balance sheet, had huge burn rates. They were leasing tremendous amounts of space based upon their projected needs. You know, the the idea of some is good, more is better, and too much is just about right. Kind of one of my favorite uh, sayings. Uh, and, and that embodied that sort of mindset. We're not seeing that today. We have such a diversity in spawning so many more companies, and big tech is buying little tech, and that goes on and on and on. So the balance sheets of these companies generally in very good shape. They have real demand. They've been more right-sized. There's been so much more discipline by the, imposed by the VCs that were the same guys that got left, guys and gals that got left, at the altar, so to speak, on the financial upside back in the dot-com, they've said, no, you can't, uh, uh, you can't uh, lease space that you don't need. You've got to be f- fiscally and financially more responsible. So that's a totally different environment. And if you look at the amount of sublease space that these companies are putting on the market now versus dot-com, et cetera, it's just a totally different environment. That is in no way, shape, or form. I'm probably the oldest guy in most rooms with regard to real estate people. And I think the thing that I've learned is it's always the unknown that can get you, right? It's That's back to sailing. It's what's below the water, the storm that's around the corner, the something that breaks. And so it's it's uh, trees don't grow to the sky, mixing metaphors. But let's not uh, think that things only get better and, and constantly get better and never get worse. They will get worse. And when they get worse at various times, and I'm not saying now, but in over time, you'll see Kilroy become opportunistic and be a buyer again. With regard to where we're going, we're going to continue with a very simple model we have, which is do what's right for the long term. That's the overriding goal. Maintain a very conservative balance sheet. Make sure we have the best possible people. Make sure we're listening to our clientele, what they're doing, where they're going what they're thinking, and then with that information, those capabilities, uh, take advantage of it. Look, we should leave it there because I think that's the key long-term focus. But of course, the tabloid journalist in me wants to then talk about, just talk about the current conditions, which in the long term I know probably don't matter, but I'm just curious how you see sort of the next 12 months. I know COVID is somewhat uh, difficult, but you know, it is a very uh, challenging environment with uh, the political situation in, in the US. You know, you've got a West Coast market or, or that, that's been accused of being, you know, expensive and seeing migration to the Sun Belt, etc. So what, what do you think that we should be sort of really worried about? Not not the temporary things, but the, you know, the long-term issues. Is it a change of political party or, in fact, a, a re-election of Trump? Is it, as I say, do you think California can can deal with its with its issues and stop the, the flow of people um, to the Sun Belt, or that's just not, not a major issue? Well, you know what's interesting to me? I happen to be very financially conservative, liberal on the uh, let's help other side, financially conservative. It's my nature to be financially conservative as evidenced by our balance sheet and so forth. Uh, and there are times when I see various uh, things in California or other markets in which we're involved where I wake up and I look at how the voters voted and I go, oh my golly, that's just terrible. I can't stand that. That's just, that's ruinous. And then I talk to many of my tech clients and they go, this is wonderful. This is fantastic. This is exactly what we wanted. So, you know, I don't know that John Kilroy, the financial 
conservative is the best uh, predictor of uh, how people might uh, react to all this stuff. I do know that in talking to um, to uh, real estate agents, whether it's in Los Angeles, San Diego, here in the Bay Area, they say that the demand for high-end pricing and mid-range pricing has never been greater. And that does not sound to me like people are, you know, wanting to, to move out of California. I have to tell you that every I'm a policy fanatic. Bad policy is inherently bad. Good policy is inherently good. You and I might disagree on the on the notion of a particular piece of policy. So I've always said, as I've lectured for the last 15 years around uh, the country, that my biggest fear and it's not just about our country, it's about all countries. I, I'm very suspicious about the capabilities of uh, a government and what they do and where, how they're motivated. And I'm, you know, it's, we live in a macro world where there's a lot of bad people, uh, some in your neck of the woods, some in our neck of the woods, some in other uh, areas. And we just have to manage through that. But uh, unfortunately, as a company, we can't, uh, uh, you know, we can't really influence that. What we can influence is the kinds of tenants we do business with, which are the high growth tenants, and I think going to be the high growth tenants for uh, the future, uh, the markets in which they want to be, and the product in which they want to be in. And I can focus on that and do a pretty good job as a company. Uh, the politicians, uh, let's just say that I'm not a fan <laughs> yeah, a, of either it's side. It's a tough choice. I was about to say, you're in talking Australia countries. as well here, but anyway. Uh, but, but you know, one, one thing, one thing of whether it's your country or our country, at least we have a couple of sides. Yes. A yes, lot of places around the world only have one. I agree 100%. So you mentioned the, the, the growth companies. Just to close, just give us a flavor of, you know, what you do see, you know, the next, you know, three, five years. Um, obviously, uh, you know, we've seen the um, entertainment industry really turned on its head with with Netflix, etc. Um, you've got life science uh, as as becoming more of a sort of a mainstream area of, of tenant demand. Uh, it seems as though with with a number of players trying to get in. What, what do you think is going to be the key drivers of of your um, uh, real estate for the next, as I say, five, three, five, seven years? Well, in it, it, it life science, as you mentioned that, in South San Francisco, we own the largest entitled property, a land area there, and a very supply-constrained market, and we'll deliver at cost another $3 billion over the next you know, five, ten years. I think that'll do extremely well and be very valuable. Uh, with regard to entertainment, as you know, we're uh, one of the two biggest landlords in Hollywood. We're doing Netflix's new content headquarters, which is the latest state-of-the-art facility. We've seen Apple and uh, and Amazon and everybody else move into the entertainment area. So I think that's going to grow tremendously. And we've made up some bit, some good plays uh, down in the L.A. area, including our recent uh, purchase of uh, an existing group of buildings that can be redeveloped called Black Welder, which is in uh, in Culver City, uh, we're starting to see big tech move into San Diego. We've recently announced a deal there. I'm not at liberty to say who it is for uh, NDA reasons, but they're a Fortune 50 company. Uh, and uh, we think we will continue to see big uh, demand up in the Northwest. That's been 
a, you know, a tremendous market. There's a lot, several millions of square feet looking for a home up there and several millions of square feet of recent uh, deal activity. Uh, Amazon just committed to another 2 million square feet in Bellevue. Um, so I think that the markets that we're in and the types of tenants we're doing business with will continue to grow. But one thing also I would I would uh, mention to you, if you just look at the last couple of years, some of the tenants that didn't exist mm. even five or six years ago, Okta, one of the latest com- biggest companies in uh, cybersecurity, they're headquartered at 101st Street, our building in San Francisco, DoorDash, who is food delivery, is at 303 2nd Street. Um, and it, you know, Dropbox, Box, all these companies. Uh, the, the, we will continue to work with those companies that have new innovations that are going to grow. When I, I looked at something the other day, I don't have this committed to memory, Andrew, so I just, I'll talk directionally and it'll be wrong. But if you look at uh, Netflix uh, and uh, if you look at Salesforce, and you look at some of these other companies that have been around, some of them not that long, and you look at, and you go to Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And if you just invested a dollar in all those companies, you'd be a wealthy man today. The reality is technology is where it's going. It's where it's been. They're the biggest consumers of space. They're the ones that are inventing new products. They're the ones that are going to continue to grow. They'll grow geographically because their products are sold around the world. They'll grow geographically because they need to hire more brain power. There's not enough brain power in any one location. And that is where we have really tried to, uh, to hitch our, uh, our wagon to, is the companies that are really uh, 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 the, the growers. And somebody has said to me that in terms of where are we in the tech revolution as you bear like the industrial revolution one of the biggest tech uh company uh, founders and leaders uh who's a lot younger than i am told me uh, not too long ago he said you know what if this were a baseball game nine innings we're just listening to the national anthem it's <laughs> it's there's so much bandwidth as to what is going to happen well john isn't it great that it's not the industry that drove much of the real estate or commercial office real estate demand in the 80s and 90s, which was the financial services industry, which is filled with people who aren't that productive or creative. And I'm talking about including myself here. So I, I think that's the perspective that um, uh, I think is terrific, that, 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 that you know, you're in a market that's driven by real creative, dare I say it, productive um, uh, tenants. Um, that are really all about uh, employing people in useful and um, and hopefully uh, productive lives. So, look, I think that's a great note to finish on. And and also just around back, um, you know, you mentioned about sailing and, and going out into the, the deep uh, blue sea and it being a real, you know, um, uh, shows through people's real character. And I think next time you do decide, you know, to do that Sydney to Hobart, let me know because I'll fly to Hobart and welcome you in on the dock. Well, that would be wonderful. That's where I'll be safest. That would be wonderful. And thank you, Andrew. And please say hello to Rob and DeMarco and everybody else at Resolution Capital. You're a tremendous investor, wonderful people, and we wish you all the best through this difficult period. Thanks, John. Really appreciate your time. That was terrific. All the best to you and your team. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Over and out. Bye. Before you go... This podcast has been created as general information only. 
and is not intended to be advice of any kind. It does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs.